could be in finance, you could be in accounting, you could be in marketing, you could be in procurement, whatever. You can go into that job without having any kind of a sustainability component. Go get to know the sustainability people, offer to help them, work with them. You will absolutely get an opportunity to do more in your area to bring sustainability there. You might end up working for the sustainability team or you might end up creating a sustainability function in your own area. There's just like huge opportunities here for people who are self-starters and really want to make a difference. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Tansi Wheeling worked among many places with the Rainforest Alliance. Beyond influencing individuals, she led organizations and influenced and influences industries on global scales. She oversaw major changes at places like Kraft, J.P. Morgan, all around the world, not just in the United States. I met her when she helped bring the Secretary General of the United States to NYU, so she works with some major people. You get to hear from her that massive change is possible because she lived it. She talks experience, not just theory. What she talks about is practical advice and histories of what worked and what takes more patience since it's not easy. She's working with people. It's very interesting, I find, how working with organizations has a lot more to do with working with people than you might think. Anyway, let's listen to her because you hear a lot of empathy and compassion, working with organizations, and most of all, effectiveness and friendliness. You can hear that she really enjoys what she does, as hard as it is. She gets a lot of reward. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Josh. I'm here with Tansi Whelan. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Josh. And glad to be here. I teach at NYU. You teach at NYU. And also, with this podcast, this is the Leadership in the Environment podcast. We look a lot at leadership. And there's a big divide in leadership, as I see it. Different people may see it differently, between personal leadership, one-on-one leadership, how to influence one other person at a time or small groups, and then this whole organizational change. And this podcast is really focused on the first one. And I think you've done the first one too, but I think you've also done a lot of the second one. Mm-hmm. And that's an area that in, in my whole career, like I've said, like, I'm going to focus on one. And I think that's useful and effective, but there's a whole other area that I've really neglected. I'd love to hear stuff about that. I wonder if we could start by, is that a view that you also look at? And if so, have you done a lot of work in this other area? Well, so I ran Rainforest Alliance for 15 years, for example, and Rainforest Alliance mission was to um, work with companies and producers to change behavior, basically, to improve land use practices, consumer uh, practices, and so on. And to do that, you need to influence organizations. But Mm -hmm. the thing is, you need to to influence individuals within organizations. You Mm -hmm. don't influence an organization. You figure out, all right, let's say you want to change the coffee industry. So you look at the coffee industry and you say... Who are the key players? What are the big brands? What are the intermediaries? So the traders who are, where's all the coffee coming from? So what kind of farmers are producing it? Are they small farmers, big farmers? Are they men, are they women? Are they Colombian? Are they, you know, 
and where are they from and where are the key leverage points? And then, then, then I go in and you say, all right, within company X, who are the people I need to reach? Because this company is important because it controls 30% of the world's coffee. So what do they care about? So then you sort of study the organization and find out what they're interested in and what drives them, how they see their competitive advantage and so on. And then you find the right people. And that's the toughest part to mm-hmm. talk to in their language about what it is you want them to do that they want to do only they don't know that yet uh-huh. <laughs> right? yeah that's this is this is changing leading in the environment it's like people right. want clean air and water they just don't know yeah what you're talking about sounds like experience i didn't hear you I, it didn't sound like you were talking like this is the theory that you read in a book although it might also be no it's experience i mean i'm sure there's i mean there's a lot of literature that says you know everything's about people right when you come down to it it's how you interact with people so you're i think your focus on leadership individuals individual is critical because you don't an organization itself doesn't lead it's the individuals within it that cause it to lead Mm -hmm. so you need to be thinking about that but you also need to understand what if you're trying to change an organization you need to understand the, the things that are organizational like culture like how they see themselves because they'll be, you know, they'll be different, right, than their counterpart. And they are driven by different things or have different objectives. So you need to understand those and be able to then, again, speak the language and engage them around sustainability. How do you figure that part out? I mean, now when you said culture, I thought when you're trying to influence a person, I think it's very important to understand their emotions, what motivates them. And companies, well, if it's for profit, you figure, well, they're just trying to put keep up the share price and things. But one as you point out, you're always dealing with people. There's no company. Mm-hmm. And two, there is a culture. It's not just what the company, it's not just, first of all, they're not all for profit. And then even if they're for profit, there's lots of, there's culture and there's, how do you find that stuff out? Is, it, are, is there more of an, an emotion to a company than I, than I thought? I shouldn't say company, organization. Well, and I'm just talking about companies right now. So yeah, I mean, you can tell a lot about a company in a variety of different so we would do research. You can look on the website. So how does the website communicate about them? Now, you may think, well, this is just a corporate, you know, expression. But um, some websites will be very, hear the facts, ma'am, and that's it. Some will be very glossy and talk about, talk through stories and narratives. Some will be engineering and process oriented, right? So they're all different in how they express what they think is important. And then looking at how they talk about sustainability. Do they have clear targets? Do they have um, uh, accountability around that? Do they seem to treat it as something that's embedded to the company or something that's sort of just like, well, this is a nice little thing to do off at the side. So you, you, you get to understand a great deal about the company. That way you also, we would go to conferences and places where we'd find people who are active in the sustainability space around from these different companies. So specialty coffee association, if you're talking coffee, you'd, you'd go there and you'd meet all the different companies and you'd talk to them and you'd find out what the people say about what they're interested in their company, right? So you're listening and learning about what their key objectives are, what their risks are, what the problems are that they see for their particular company, for the industry. So some companies, you know, for example, they're very focused on marketing. Some are very focused on supply chain. Some are very driven by sort of the creative CEO. Some are more democratic and how they run you know whole foods you you had to understand how whole foods worked it's probably different now under amazon but if you were interested in bringing sustainability to them actually
actually, in many cases, you had to deal with the store manager, not the sort of leadership of the company, because so much was decided by the store manager. So you had to understand that, right? So also, and, and also, they're very driven by John Mackey's kind of libertarian approach. You need to understand sort of that what does a libertarian approach like look like in a business, right? And so how do you deal with that? So it's all it's all stuff that you learn along the way, uh-huh. and, and then you get the competition. The other part that you do, it works well with organizations, but also individuals, is you get a competition going, right? So, you- so if they're moving slow, yeah, I've always found in business, if someone's moving slowly, you got to imply that something's going on. Yeah, so you, if you can get one company to commit to, uh, let's say, sourcing, you know, we uh, Lipton made a commitment to source Rainforest Alliance certified tea. And after they did that, then we started to see Tetley's and Twining's and Tycoon and all these other companies begin to make commitments to sourcing sustainable tea or if you look at the banks um one big bank i don't remember which one started first but city and jp morgan and morgan stanley all have you know 100 billion dollar commitments to renewable energy and things like that and you know one started and the next did it and the next did it and so on right so that's an individual but expressed to an organization now i don't know if people can hear it but you're smiling and it looks like a kind of uh sneaky smile that tells me there's a story of one time when this worked or something like that is it no, I just um, think of it as a very male thing. And that's why I'm smiling <laughs> because it's sort of like, you know, who's got the bigger whatever in terms uh-huh. of um, getting them to uh, agree to, to you know, compete about this stuff. So that's why I'm smiling because I, I don't really see it as something that if you had a generally these CEOs are male, if you had a bunch of CEO females, I don't know that it would work as well. It might yeah, I've never heard of women competing. <laughs> we certainly compete. But just in that way, I don't know. So it's interesting. It's touching again. Sorry. I, yeah. I hope it's not. But that goes back to what you're saying. Okay, even if, even if it's a corporate company organizational thing, there's still always people. And I think a lot of people lose sight of that. I think because I think one of the big problems is that people approach this with like, if you look at the facts, this is the way things should be. And if you just see it the way I do, then you'll agree that this is what you should do. And I don't hear you saying that. No, I don't think one-on-one works like that either. I definitely, yeah, I think yeah. one-on-one doesn't work that way. And I thought that there's a more of a chance of it working organizationally, but looking at you now, you're like, not at all. No, it's D- more complicated in a way. Organization, so. I would have thought, I would have hoped, yeah, part of the reason I was saying not going there and sticking where I, where I am is, I thought it was a little easier that you could say, look, if you do it this way, you'll make this amount of money. But if you do it this way, you'll make more money. And then the companies will say, well, what, independent of what we care, I mean, there'll be maybe some influence of, how to work with the people, but ultimately they're going to make a rational decision more than an individual would. I don't look to reason as a way to influence people. I don't think it generally gets you pushed back. Companies? Companies certainly care about the financial element of the story, right? But uh, companies are choosing to pursue sustainability for a variety of reasons, part of which is financial, but part of it is might be that they as individuals care about the issue, want to feel proud about something to tell their kids. It might be that they think that there's major risk because some other company had a major labor rights problem or some other kind of challenge. It, uh, so they want to avoid that. It may be that they have you know, experienced the opportunity of uh, creating a niche product that has done well. So they want to you know, build you know, from a sustainability point of view. So they want to build more opportunity there. Uh, it may be that their consumer market surveys say that millennials care about this and therefore uh, 
particularly as employees. And so therefore they want to be able to recruit more employees. So therefore they're going to invest in this. There's a whole series of reasons that companies would, would think through. And we can't, you know, as an, as a nonprofit, a nonprofit is never credible going to a company and saying, if you do this, you will make more money because they're looking at us saying you're a nonprofit, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, so we can show them, you know, example, p- part of the engagement process is here's why this is beneficial and here's the evidence that we can show you on the financial side of things, right? But it's mm. it's really a, a much more sophisticated dance than that. If I heard you right, you echoed something that I've been hearing over and over again from guests that I've interviewed, that leadership begins with the other person's interests. I mean, you're saying some of them want to do it for this, some want to do it for that, and some the corporate at level, they want to do this, at the personal level, they want to do that. And that's what guides the whole process is what – have you ever – I mean, I guess there might be companies that are like, we don't care about the environment. And if you come in with anything, it's not going to work. Sure, there are companies like that. And if there are companies that care in some way, you got to know how they care and address what they care about. Right. As much as you think that – I mean, I'm kind of speaking hopefully to people who are listening. If you're thinking, I'm going to, organ, I'm going to, I'm going to bring in and tell them what's right, how's that going to be received? Not well. Okay, not well. Yeah, it, and so do you come in with questions? Do you come in or do you, do you first not even, you don't even approach until you have something in mind, like you, you do your research ahead of time to find out what's. So ideally um, you spend time getting to know some people in the organization. So yes, you do your research on the company, you know what they're doing out there, you know, whether they're doing anything on the sustainability front or not, you know what their website says about that. You know, you've talked to other companies and other NGOs about them. So you, You've talked, even talked to other people about the individual that you may need, that you want to sort of reach out to. So you're, you're gathering intelligence as much as you can, and then you can proceed in a variety of different ways. You can do, you, as I said, you might meet them, you know that they're going to be speaking at a conference, you meet them sort of serendipitously or not serendipitously, but just sort of informally mm-hmm. and talk to them and see if you can get them interested in a more formal meeting. Or you go directly and ask for a meeting to talk specifically about what you're doing. When we were first starting out at Rainforest Alliance, we had to do it much more informally because we weren't known that well. We weren't seen as someone that you had to meet with. As we uh, got more mature and had more access, then I think most people would take meeting with us. And then we would be you know, going in with knowing a great deal about them as much as we could, but also starting with, you know, we know that your interest, you know, you're focusing on this kind of sustainability. Can you tell us more? What are your objectives? Where are you trying to go with this, right? And so that then we could be the most effective we could be around showing them what else they can do. What you're describing sounds a lot like sales. Did, yeah, did sales. you take sales classes? Or? No. <laughs> when I taught social entrepreneurship, I would teach them sales, but I wouldn't tell them I was teaching them sales. Right. And they, it's really important. And I think, but if I told them it was sales, they'd poo-poo it. They'd be like, no, that's for this other stuff. That's not, that's tricky or something like that. Is that, should people more interested in the environment learn more about sales? Sales and stakeholder, stakeholder engagement and mapping, actually. So one of the interesting things when you meet people who are responsible for sustainability within companies, they themselves have to pitch and engage all the different parts of the organization and educate them and engage them. So they go out on that learning and listening towards themselves mm-hmm. and have to be incredibly good salespeople to be effective internally, right? Mm-hmm. And they also externally need to manage a whole lot of different stakeholders like the Rainforest Alliance and others. So again, if they 
are good at what they do, they will have done and known, done research about Rainforest Alliance because we were an important constituent for our company and coffee, right? So I think that that salesmanship in this space where really, A, you understand, you've done sort of stakeholder mapping. You know who all the stakeholders are and kind of what motivates them and what role they play in the dynamic of whatever industry you're looking at. And then within the company, you also, if um, whether you're the external organization like Rainforest Alliance or the internal chief sustainability officer, you also have to do that mapping, right? And understand and sort of figure out, again, where the leverage points are. Well, I know procurement has some issues that they could use my help with. So I'm going to sort of work with them, see how I can begin to get sustainability into sort of the procurement way of approaching things. How did you learn that? Was it all trial and error? Did people before you walk you through these things? I mean, I'm thinking now from the perspective of someone listening. Mm-hmm. I would guess a lot of people who listen to a podcast that's and the environment mm-hmm. are probably thinking sales, that's not my thing. Mm-hmm. And hopefully they're thinking, oh, maybe it should be. Mm-hmm. And But hopefully they're not thinking, I guess I got to school of hard knocks mm-hmm. or just watch a couple of YouTube videos. Uh, was it school of hard knocks for you or was it mentorship? I think it probably started, so this is in the nonprofit world with, learning how to fundraise because fundraise like sales mm-hmm. is the same thing. You know, you listen to people, try to understand what it is that they are excited about in order to be able to get them to write a check to what you would like them to write a check for. So, um, and I learned that working with the chairman of a group that I ran and he was really good at it and I watched him do it. Mm-hmm. I think I learned from him some, I think the thing is whether it's fundraising or, or this kind of engagement around, bringing people around to environmental or sustainability causes, if you believe in what you do, mm-hmm. you know, it's not work, it's not hard, it's exciting to mm-hmm. actually bring people around. I think the important thing to remember, though, is that it is not your job to shove things down people's throats, right? That just doesn't get you anywhere. So mm-hmm. for me, what I always remember is what, what is the bottom line is where I'm trying to get, so I don't need to prove that I'm right immediately. I need to focus on how I'm going to get the person to where I want them to go. Mm-hmm. And telling them that I'm right is not the way I'm going to get them where I want them to go. Right. So that's that to me is that it's just sort of being a bit humble and being a learner mm-hmm. and a listener. And and if you think about it that way, you don't have to think about it as sales, although indeed it is a sale. It's, you know, it is selling. Mm-hmm. But it's more like, hey, this is an opportunity to learn what makes this person tick. What do they care about? Um, how does that relate to what I'm doing? How do I synthesize those things and make it work? For, how do I get to a win-win? That's what it's about. And I hope this is the case with you because it's definitely the case with me that I have to remind myself that all the time because it's I'm very tempted. And what feels actually natural is to tell them why I'm right. And if they just understood things the way I would, then they would agree that I was right. And then they'd come around. And you have to not, you have to purposefully not do that and remind yourself over and over again. Mm-hmm. Is that the case with you too? Is it like, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, 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 it's sometimes in the, the meeting that I hated the most was sitting down with these, with marketing folks who would over and over again, sort of tell me why everything wouldn't work to market on this, you know, to sort of sustainable products. And also by the way, why shouldn't we as a nonprofit be doing it? And that's why I like, I have to bite my time. Well, first of all, you have all the money for marketing. Second of all, if you can force people to, somehow think that they can't live without a ruffled potato chip, you can certainly figure out how to sell them sustainability. So stop, you know, uh-huh. 
<laughs> not what I uh-huh. um, was allowed to say. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. I had to like, <laughs> uh, be straightforward. I mean, you never want to, um, you have to be really careful, particularly when you're running an NGO like Rainforest Alliance. I would never back off of our beliefs or, you know, do something that wasn't in line with what we wanted to do, right? So I wouldn't compromise in a way that would compromise our ethics or our integrity. Um, but at the same time, shoving things down the throat, not listening to what the challenges are for them. Because in many cases, there's, if not good reasons, there are reasons why they're not doing things. So you need to understand them and sort of help them solve for those reasons. Rather than More listening. And, yeah. yeah. And I get frustrated looking at, there's a lot of people who care about the environment, who want to change things, who want to lead. And they're doing what we're talking about not doing. And I feel like the way I generally put it is like, I feel a lot of their behavior, I think, gets populists elected. And it's incredibly frustrating because they're trying to help and they're maybe they are in ways I'm not seeing, but I feel like it's often moving things backward. And do you see it that way, too, sometimes? So I see I see two sides of that coin. So if we just apply it to the environmental movements, I'm applied to organizations for a minute, as opposed to individuals. We need the full spectrum of type of NGO. We need the campaigners who, in effect, are the ones that you're talking about as individuals who will go and attack a company, don't really want to hear what the company's reasons are, will, you know, sort of embarrass them and create a big scene about their behavior. And then you have the, the organizations like Rainforest Alliance that um, want to engage with the company and sort of help them find solutions. If we didn't have those campaigners who really tick off the companies, right? The companies don't like them at all. So people for the ethical treatment of animals. And right. that's not so right. environmental, but... Yeah. Yes, it's in this, in, on that side of things. Yeah. Without those, quite a few companies would never come to be embraced by the Rainforest Alliance. Mm-hmm. So it's just like anything. You have Good cup, bad cup. Right? You have an extreme. And it pushes people more to the middle without that anchoring, mm-hmm. right, from that extreme side. Then it would be harder to get people towards the middle. So... I mean, so then when you apply that to an individual and you've got an individual sort of interacting with you one-on-one and not listen, you know, sort of being very um, certain of the righteousness and not listening to your perspective, I think absolutely that can backfire. In some cases, it may make them be more willing to listen to a more reasoned argument later. In other cases, it may, like with some populist things, may turn them off to the issue altogether. So. Mm-hmm. At that individual level, I think it's a little more complicated than at an organizational level. So I shouldn't be so frustrated at some of these things going on because this is an ecosystem of, I don't know, the organizational ecosystem of different people working in different ways. Maybe. I mean, you also have on the other side, you know, you have extremists on the other side. So again, without the anchoring of the two extremes, maybe mm-hmm. it'd be more challenging for the people in the middle to kind of get to a good middle place too. Who knows? That's the right side of it. Potentially. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. There's something else I was going to ask. There are a couple things. Oh, one of them was that when I cover sales stuff in my class, one of the things, they're always nervous. It's really a big hurdle for them to get over. But as long as I get one or two students in the class to talk about their experience of having 
successfully influence someone to buy the, the exercise I have is usually to sell an apple to someone. And sometimes they're like overjoyed. They're like, and then I get this race to the top in the class because if one or two people do it, then the rest are like, I, I didn't do it. I, if I, like, I, I did this homework halfway. Now I really want to do it. Have you had experiences where you've had some, I guess I would call it a corporate sale where someone like, they're like reinforced alliance. They make a lot of sense. Let's do this deal with them. What's that like? Have you, what's, what's like a big deal that you've had and how was it? Oh, lots of big deals. Um, you know, uh, the, the first big one that we got was Kraft, back when Kraft was coffee, committing to work with us to source a significant percentage of Rainforest Alliance certified coffee. That was the first big company that we got on board. That's a big company. Yeah. So it was really exciting. How long did it take to close? It took, for- co- it took uh, two years, maybe. Years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not any big ones like that have always take years. So we've had a lot. Lipton was another one. I mean, we have a, we had, um, Mars, we had, we had Rainforest Alliance worked with 5,000 companies, um, with very specific commitments around certified sourcing. We had groups of people around the world who were working on this. So yeah, there'd be like, you know, when, when the latest announcement came in from whoever brought it in and it was just really exciting and really cool. People like also when people would see the frog on different products all over the world, you know, people take photographs and show it so it's a, are there photo ops and ribbon cuttings and, and press releases, or is it just kind of... Yeah. Can you capture that moment or, or one of them? Because um, I feel like that's got to be craft. I mean, that's like, they're probably doing a lot of messy stuff. And then to get one of the messy things off the table and have, have them doing some stuff that's going to be hopefully like beneficial, mm-hmm. that's got to feel good. Yeah, it does. Well, so with craft, we brought the CEO of craft, Roger Daramidi down to El Salvador to look at Rainforest Alliance certified farms and we brought his executive team. And so, you know, getting him to say yes, I mean, that was sort of, we, we announced it. I can't remember if we announced it there or, but announced an association with that anyway. And really, really cool. And he saw directly what kind of difference that could make, which was great for him and for his executive team. And actually, when he retired from craft, he um, came on the Rainforest Alliance board. So oh, man. This he, yeah, so he got really enthused about the whole thing and was on the board for 11 years. This make a big difference. I mean, yeah. I, obviously, you've made big differences, but, like, it's one relationship. Mm-hmm. Did you have to work all the way up to him from other people? Or? Yeah, that always, I mean, we always do that. You know, we start with a sustainability person, or in that case, it was the marketing person, the communication, global corporate communications person, I think we started with first and then the sustainability person and then got to Roger over time. So, and then again, as Reinforced Alliance got well, more well-known, it was easier for me to get directly to the CEO, you mm-hmm. know, so. Oh, and then did he put you in touch with other CEO? Did you come in at the top at any places? Um, he, uh, not when he was at Kraft. So later when he came on the board, he helped me with reaching out to some others, but uh, no. That, that was just really a lot to do with just craft. So. This is really intriguing. I, I love the personal side of things. Part of me wants to keep going there. Part of me is, I'm curious, and, and if this is too off topic, Reinforced Alliance NYU, mm-hmm. was that a big jump or is that a natural flow? And did you want to educate or what? I had been uh, 15 years at Reinforced Alliance, which I think, you know, I so this goes back to leadership. I think people should, you know, move on after a certain point you need new blood new ideas always so when i came to reinforce alliance i was thinking 10 or 12 years and mm-hmm. i was ending up having great time so i stayed a little bit longer but i think it's important to have turnover at the top 
so I was starting to think about what I wanted to do next. I was looking at different options and uh, Professor Bruce Buchanan here, who runs the Business and Society Program, who I taught a couple of classes for, had asked me if I would be interested in coming to teach. And in effect, well, you said a lot of what I did was sales at Rainforest Alliance. A lot of it, what I did was also education. Mm-hmm. And I like teaching and I like engagement, uh, but I also like the opportunity of working with business. I didn't want to let that go. And I wanted to do more. I was a journalist way back in the day, so I wanted to do more writing and more research. And less traveling because I was traveling 60% of the time. Mm-hmm. So so then I told Bruce, I'll come, but I'm an entrepreneur, so I really need to run something. So how about I start a center for sustainable business here? So mm-hmm. that's how that came about. Oh, wow. So that reminds me of another thing that, okay, a lot of people out there, I'm saying this now kind of to the listeners, mm-hmm. a lot of people out there over and over again, I hear I'm trying to get ahead of my career. This environmental stuff is kind of nice to have, but I really got to get ahead. And I keep talking to people who got ahead by doing things environmental, mm-hmm. to which I say, there's a huge global demand that's not being met. And you're another case where it feels like you've reached high levels of leadership at massive organizations through doing what other people weren't. Like exactly what they're saying I shouldn't do. That seems to be why, you know, if it was an area where there's not global demand, I'd say don't waste your time in something that people don't care about. But people really care about this. Mm-hmm. Is it safe to say that not it may not be the easiest road, but this is a road to leadership. Yeah. My entire career has been creating opportunities for myself. So during graduate school, I interned for World Wildlife Fund, and then uh, they created a job for me. Um, and then when I left there, I went to Sweden to be the editor of an environmental journal or the associate editor. And the editor left, and so I got to be managing editor. And then I went, I met my to be husband and we decided we were going to go somewhere fun. So we picked Costa Rica. So then I decided to be an environmental journalist and sort of did all kinds of fun stuff there. And then I came back here and after having worked as um, in charge of information for National Audubon Society for a while, I decided I wanted to do something else. So then I found this opportunity with the New York League of Conservation Voters who had a great board, Larry Rockefeller and Bobby Kennedy, among others, but no staff. And so I said, great, I'll build this for them. So I did. I built that organization And then from there, I just thought, well, we need um, these leagues of conservation voters around the country. I'd met a couple of them, and I said, well, why don't I create a federation of leagues of conservation voters? So I went out and raised money to do that and created leagues of conservation voters all over the country. And then from there, I decided that I wanted to, my daughter was young, and I wanted to do more consulting. So I did a bunch of consulting, including for Rainforest Alliance. And then um, when she was a bit older, and they recruited me to to run it, they were about a $4 million organization. And so a lot of people wouldn't have taken that job, right? I took it and I built it into a $50 million organization, mm-hmm. right? And then with this job, I said, I'll raise the money for the center. I'll create the center. And so, so each time there's been a creation element of it. Mm-hmm. And part of it is just my personality, I think, um, that I like doing that. But part of it is that this is a growing space, a space where you can, no matter who you are, create an opportunity. And actually, one of the things I tell my students because there's only limited sustainability jobs available in business, in, in business, right? There's these small sustainability teams. Mm-hmm. But um, the fact of the matter is that I believe that all functions in business are going to have sustainability components. And the companies that are really embedding sustainability are starting to do that. So you could be in finance, you could be in accounting, you could be in marketing, you could be in procurement, whatever. You can go into that job without having any kind of a sustainability component. Go get to know the sustainability people. 
offer to help them work with them, you will absolutely get an opportunity to do more in your area to bring sustainability there. You might end up working for the sustainability team or you might end up creating a sustainability function in your own area, right? This is an opportunity. There's like huge opportunities here for people who are self-starters and really want to make a difference. Doesn't the rest of the world get it backward? <laughs> I feel like they think that this is like the small side thing, but it's like a big, you said it wasn't that big, but I think it's growing. I think the big thing, to me, the, it's not the size, but the, the direction mm-hmm. and the demand. Mm-hmm. And I, what I heard of, of your description was, it was like leadership role. There were two things that I heard, leadership roles. And it wasn't always obvious that it would be a leadership role, but when you made it a leadership role, because you saw the growth potential there. Or, or something that you really liked, like the journalism or when you were working to, I presume, to spend more time with your children. That yeah. was the, the consulting was mm-hmm. your choice. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like an enviable career. I mean, enviable in the sense of enjoyable, like lucky in the sense of what's a good quote on luck. In Napoleon, when, when they brought him officers to be promoted, he would say, is this man lucky? It's a skill, I think, you know, it comes from perseverance and so forth. I have a whole lot of more questions, but I, I, now I want to shift to the personal challenge, which is that uh, this is, it might be more challenging for you for, than many because the longer someone and the more uh, heartfelt someone has been environmental, acting on their environmental values, they tend to have already done all the low-hanging fruit. I'm not sure if that's the case with you or not. What I ask people is, let me take a step back. The environment, some people care about it for different reasons. It sounds like you care about it a lot. <laughs> what generates the caring? Where, where does it come from? Probably a couple of different places um, or reasons, but I grew up in New York City, but my dad works in a museum of natural history when I was a kid, so I spent a lot of time there. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had and still have a farm in Vermont, so I got to spend a lot of time up there hiking and fishing and camping and being outdoors, um, looking at, you know, understanding local farming, things like that. So that all, I think, contributed to me being interested in environmental issues. My mom worked for the Bureau at Institute for Criminal Justice Reform. And so I also care about the social side. My work has always included the social side, like Rainforest Alliance included the social side in a big way. So I have that side too. And I think also the other part of it is that when I was a kid, my grandparents lived in Mexico City and we spent a fair amount of time there. And I was really affected by the contrast between rich and poor Mm there, you know, and both in the city and then going out in rural areas and that also, I think, sort of shaped what I'm interested in and how I'm interested in kind of societal good. Right? So I'm hearing a lot of people in this. I mean, your family, your relationship with your family, you're growing up, the relation between rich and poor. And because the environment is kind of abstract, I, I think. I mean, yes, there's trees and clouds. But when people say the environment, to me, it, it connects to people. And I hear that in you as well of how you affect other or yeah but also i mean that there's the hiking and the fishing and the camping and the being outdoors and being a city kid but just running around like lying in the middle of a field at five o'clock on an august afternoon and smelling the alfalfa and watching mm. the sunset on the purple green mountains you know like wow <laughs> <laughs> you know so so the, the environment is part of it it's people and it, but it is the just the beauty of nature and that also, I think, is part of why I do what I do. A visceral sensor, sensory yeah, experience. Sensory experience, yeah. Now, this will probably not make it in, but I, I just watched this, saw this uh, photo essay of, he's a forager, he goes up, he's up in Vermont, and like he f- supplies a bunch of restaurants in the city. It's kind of funny because I just read this book on, um, on uh, the San Bushman in Southern Africa, 
and they don't store food. They're like when they're hungry, they go out and either kill something or they dig it up or whatever, which I guess is also killing a plant, but yeah, you know, they get their food. And now that's like the number one restaurant in this world, in the world that people keep telling you about is this place, uh, different ratings, but it was some places uh, in Denmark, N- N- Namo or something. I forget the name of it. Uh, you're talking about Sweden, I'm familiar with Sweden? There's, now there's multiple ones, but there's one in Copenhagen. Okay. And this trend of like getting, scavenging for food and getting local stuff and the way people used to eat all the time. Mm-hmm. People every now and then, like if I say I'm going to take the train instead of flying, they're like, Josh, we can't just go back to living in caves. I'm like, I didn't talk about living in caves, but at the highest level of like, I don't know, these, it, it, this place in Copenhagen has two Michelin stars, which it seems like a lot. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about is it's all there. Mm-hmm. We don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for it to be delivered in, in like special restaurants and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, sorry, what you made me, you made me think of like, People are trying to get back to what you, your childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, lucky. Maybe my luck, whatever. But that was lucky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So what I ask people is, is based on what they care about. And everyone cares about something. I, I really love the answers to that question of what, what it means to you, because sometimes it's so different for everyone. Yeah. And I really thought before I did this, it was going to be the same and it's not. And it's fascinating. So the, are you up for doing something to act on something there with the with a few constraints that I've learned to put on, you don't have to change. You don't have to fix all the world's problems overnight because that stops a lot of people from doing anything. But it can't be telling other people what to do. It has to be something measurable. So it's not awareness. It's not that's nice, but it can't stop there. It has to be something that makes a measurable difference. It doesn't have to be global warming, which everyone, a lot of people think of, and uh, it can't be something you're already doing. Anything come to mind? Are you interested, are you interested in doing something? It, it's your option. Yeah. No. I was I was thinking about it, and uh, so there. There are two things I was thinking about. One um, is environmental, the other isn't, and the other is broader, so I'm not sure it qualifies. But the, the thing I was thinking about the environment side, which is small, but is something that I'd like to do, which is I like drinking wine, um, but I don't particularly look for the organic or biodynamic wines. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I do sometimes, but I really don't do it as a regular thing. I sort of just, I, want, I care about the taste, I'm not worried about that stuff. So what I'm thinking is that I would like to do a hundred percent always organic biodynamic. And even if I'm in a restaurant, I ask for, I will ask for it because they don't ask for it. I'll ask for it. If they don't have it, I won't have it. Right. So that was one thing. It's a small thing, but I was thinking mm-hmm. that I could do that. Do you want me to tell you about the other op- option or just focus on that? Let's hear the other one too. Okay. So, cause if someone at home might be thinking, they might hear it and think, Oh, I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, so this other one is not so much a, so this way I may not, may not qualify, but um, I'm so Sustainability is not just environmental, right? It's social and governance as well. And um, I think one of the big challenges in America today is around jobs and the how the short-term kind of corporate shareholder results looking at short-term and cutting everything you can, which means cutting your biggest cost, which means cutting jobs and outsourcing, offshoring, automating, paying people, you know, low wages, people going on the economy with no benefits, all that stuff is a huge, huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a newer one for me and I am just starting to research it and figure out what I can do to contribute to that dialogue. So I don't, you know, my commitment is pretty broad and more about influence. So that's why I'm not sure it really, uh, qualifies, but what I want to do is I want to over time 
become as expert in that issue as I have gotten on the environment and see how I can really, from this perch at Stern, play a role in shifting companies back to seeing themselves as a provider of jobs, not a company that only thinks about shareholders and tries to eliminate jobs, right? Because mm-hmm. I think that's just bad for our society. So that's that's the other area I was thinking of, but it may not qualify for what you want. So I Actually, several people have forced me to, like, they did things that were, by the words that I said, fit. And I thought, yeah, but that's not what I was talking about. That's not what I meant by environment. But then several times, what they've said has resonated with people that didn't resonate with me. And I was like, I want to reach these people. And it's not about me. It's about the listeners and it's about you and the guests. And so I'm open, I'm becoming increasingly open to interpretation in different ways. Does either of them or both of them appeal to you more or... Well, if I make the commitment on the one, one, I'll do it. The other one I'm probably, I'm going to do, <laughs> um, but it'd be nice to be held accountable to it and be reporting on it, but I'm going to do it. The wine one, I thought about it specifically for this. So this will mean that I will have to do it. Mm-hmm. So either way, your call. Yeah. The accountability is a nice element. It, it, <laughs> it, leaders like accountability <laughs> and non-leaders don't. And uh, so hopefully people are listening, go onto the podcast and you can, even if you're not a guest, you can commit publicly to something that'll add this accountability, mm-hmm. uh, which as you can hear, Tansi is like, I want it. She doesn't want it, but she wants it. Right. right? Yeah. And uh, I don't know. Uh, to me, it's a coin toss. It's, mm-hmm. it's your interests. It feels like to, what I'm hearing is the small one is easier, but the big one is you'll probably get reward commensurate to the effort that goes into it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like you're saying like, give me the big one so I can get a big... <laughs> Um, yes, the, the put me on record. Exactly. The challenge of the big one is how, how soon do you want to talk to your, Oh, I've had people come back. Uh, John Lee Dumas signed up for a year. He's, he's going to, he lives in Puerto Rico and he's going to pick up garbage off the beach every month for a year. Uh And, uh, Dory Clark, she wants to, there's a restaurant where she, she eats and she's going to make that restaurant is going to be vegan for her. It's not a vegan restaurant, but she will only have vegan stuff there. Mm -hmm. I said, all right, how long? She was like, six months. I was like, that's a long time. She's like, yeah, I want to make sure it's for real. Most people, but a lot of people have gone for like a couple of weeks or a month, mm-hmm. but no one's gone longer than a year. Mm-hmm. But that that gives a range. Okay, because I think it would be at least a year before I'd have anything to report on that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the wine one, I can start right away. So so we can, probably we could do both. I mean, we could say we'll talk to you again in a year and right. or maybe 18 months or something if that's what it takes because yep. the calendar goes out that far. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> So should we say, so how long would it be for the, the wine one? Well, I need to get, st- I don't, <laughs> I'm not, it's not like I'm drinking every night. So I think, uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, I think it, it, you know, I need some months to sort of, I mean, I need to start right away, but before I can actually say, here's what the results have been, I think I need some time before I'll have anything appreciable to talk about. You know, it's past, it's like afternoon right now. We could just <laughs> head out. Um, so, uh, you know, 18 months to talk about both of them is fine. Or if you want to talk about the wine one in three months, I'm also happy to do that. So let's, uh, I'm going to get on my calendar. Okay. And do you want to schedule three months from now? Sure. Okay. I see you reaching for your calendar. So we are now March 29th. So if you went to June 29th, uh, I'm out of town then. June 30th, if you want to do a weekend. Uh, no, because I'm going to Vermont. July 4th weekend. Ah, okay, so we could do it. Um, but I could do the whole month of July, I'll be out. So we could. Um, Maybe just short of that? 
just short of that. Yeah. yeah. June 25th or June March 24th, 23rd. I mean, six months from now, my schedule is not that full. <laughs> How about June 21st? You got it. So we could do the same as this one? Sure. Okay. So that was three o'clock, right? Yeah. All right. So after you hang up, you'll get the, I'll, I'll show the invitation. Is there anything I didn't bring up that's worth bringing up before we wrap up? I think you did a great job. Okay, cool. And any message directly to the listeners that might be worth hearing? Um, well, I think all of us active on these issues have to be optimists, right? Because it can feel overwhelming and depressing at times. You know, like when you go out on this, you get a lot. I mean, I made this, I may, I may have made sound too easy. You know, I got a lot of no's as well as yeses. I got a lot of yeses, but I got no's. Too. You're talking about over 15 years. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And sometimes those no's were upsetting because they were really important. You know, like when you're trying to save the world and like, you know, somebody says no to you. It's like, <laughs> you mean you don't, you want to, you want right. to destroy the world? Exactly. Oh, it's like my niece told my sister-in-law, you know, which was little, don't say no to me. You know? So anyway, um, so, but I think it's always important to remember that, uh, you know, things Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of people can change the world. It's the only thing that ever has, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, I try to remember that, like, oh, God, you know, it just feels so overwhelming. There's so much going on. What can I really do in the scheme of things? Well, actually you can. So, um, you know, maintain that optimism. So you're going to take those knocks, yeah. but you stick through them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And I'll talk to you again. Well, I'll talk to you separately, yeah. but also we'll talk to you again in, in uh, roughly three months. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Josh. It's been fun. Talk to you soon. Okay. One of my biggest takeaways from Tansi is something that I over and over again have to learn and relearn. It's one of the hardest things to practice, which is that Effective leadership is rarely, if ever, about being right and just showing how right you are to the others for them to just come around. Her practice that came over decades of hard work is to be empathetic about people and organizations. You still have to understand organizations from an emotional perspective, not just the dollars and cents of things. That's really hard in practice. At least it is for me. I hope it's easier for you. Emotionally, internally, it's work. Maintaining integrity while empathizing with people you disagree with or who are doing things that you disagree with, it's really hard. But if you want change, being effective is more important than venting. And I think telling people how right you are, it feels to me a lot like venting. A younger me would only think to protest organizations I disagreed with. I certainly, I certainly carry a lot of picket signs and picketed organizations. And those things are still important. But also to engage and to lead seems to me essential. But as she put in her words, it's hard work but exciting. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and 
Living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.